This is the Internet Multicasting Service. Hopper Audio presents James Mason reading A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens. The novel opens by comparing the two cities, London and Paris, just before the French Revolution. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven. We were all going direct the other way. In short, the period was so far like the present period that some of its noisiest authorities insisted on its being received for good or evil in the superlative degree of comparison only. There were a king with a large jaw and a queen with a plain face on the throne of England. There were a king with a large jaw and a queen with a fair face on the throne of France. In both countries it was clearer than crystal to the lords of the state preserves of loaves and fishes that things in general were settled forever. It was the year of our Lord 1,775, Spiritual revelations were conceded to England at that favoured period, as at this. Mrs. Southcott had recently attained her five-and-twentieth blessed birthday, of whom a prophetic private in the lifeguards had heralded the sublime appearance by announcing that arrangements were made for the swallowing up of London and Westminster. Even the Cock Lane ghost had been laid only a round dozen of years after wrapping out its messages as the spirits of this very year last past, supernaturally deficient in originality, wrapped out theirs. Mere messages in the earthly order of events had lately come to the English crown and people from a congress of British subjects in America, which, strange to relate, had proved more important to the human race than any communications yet received through any of the chickens of the Cock Lane brood. France, less favoured on the whole as to matters spiritual than her sister of the shield and trident, rolled with exceeding smoothness downhill, making paper money and spending it. Under the guidance of her Christian pastors, she entertained herself, besides, with such humane achievements as sentencing a youth to have his hands cut off, his tongue torn out with pincers, and his body burned alive, because he had not kneeled down in the rain to do honour to a dirty procession of monks which passed within his view at a distance of some fifty or sixty yards. It is likely enough that, rooted in the woods of France and Norway, there were growing trees when that sufferer was put to death, already marked by the woodman, fate to come down and be sawn into boards to make a certain movable framework with a sack and knife in it, terrible in history. It is likely enough that in the rough outhouses of some tillers of the heavy lands adjacent to Paris, there were sheltered from the weather that very day rude carts, bespattered with rustic mire, snuffed about by pigs, and roosted in by poultry, which the farmer death had already set apart to be his tumbrils of the revolution. But that woodman and that farmer, though they work unceasingly, work silently, and no one heard them as they went about with muffled tread, 
The rather, for as much as to entertain any suspicion that they were awake, was to be atheistical and traitorous. In England, there was scarcely an amount of order and protection to justify much national boasting. Daring burglaries by armed men and highway robberies took place in the capital itself every night. Families were publicly cautioned not to go out of town without removing their furniture to upholsterers' warehouses for security. The highwayman in the dark was a city tradesman in the light, and being recognized and challenged by his fellow tradesmen, whom he stopped in his character of the captain, gallantly shot him through the head and rode away. The mail was waylaid by seven robbers, and the guard shot three dead and then got shot dead himself by the other four, in consequence of the failure of his ammunition, after which the mail was robbed in peace. That magnificent potentate, the Lord Mayor of London, was made to stand and deliver on Turnham Green by one highwayman, who despoiled the illustrious creature in sight of all his retinue. Prisoners in London jails fought battles with their turnkeys, and the majesty of the law fired blunderbusses in amongst them, loaded with rounds of shot and ball. Thieves snipped off diamond crosses from the necks of noble lords at court drawing-rooms. Musketeers went into St. Giles's to search for contraband goods, and the mob fired on the musketeers, and the musketeers fired on the mob, and nobody thought any of these occurrences much out of the common way. In the midst of them, the hangman, ever busy and ever worse than useless, was in constant requisition. Now stringing up long rows of miscellaneous criminals, now hanging a housebreaker on Saturday who had been taken on Tuesday, now burning people in the hand at Newgate by the dozen, and now burning pamphlets at the door of Westminster Hall. Today, taking the life of an atrocious murderer, and tomorrow, of a wretched pilferer who had robbed a farmer's boy of sixpence. All these things, and a thousand like them, came to pass in and close upon the dear old year 1,775. Environed by them, while the woodman and the farmer worked unheeded, those two of the large jaws and those other two of the plain and fair faces trod with stir enough and carried their divine rights with a high hand. Thus did the year 1,775 conduct their greatnesses and myriads of small creatures, the creatures of this chronicle amongst the rest, along the roads that lay before them. If Sidney Carton ever shone anywhere, he certainly never shone in the house of Dr. Manette. He had been there often during a whole year, and had always been the same moody and morose lounger there. When he cared to talk, he talked well. But the cloud of caring for nothing which overshadowed him with such a fatal darkness was very rarely pierced by the light within him. And yet he did care something for the streets that environed the house and for the senseless stones that made their pavements. Many a night he vaguely and unhappily wandered there when wine had brought no transitory gladness to him. Many a dreary daybreak revealed his solitary figure lingering there 
and still lingering there when the first beams of the sun brought into strong relief, removed beauties of architecture and spires of churches, lofty buildings, as perhaps the quiet time brought some sense of better things, else forgotten and unattainable, into his mind. He was shown upstairs and found Lucy at her work alone. She had never been quite at her ease with him and received him with some little embarrassment as he seated himself near her table. But looking up at his face in the interchange of the first few commonplaces, she observed a change in it. I fear you are not well, Mr. Carton. No, but the life I lead, Miss Manette, is not conducive to health. What is to be expected of or by such profligates? Is it not, forgive me, I have begun the question on my lips, a pity to live no better life? God knows it is a shame. Then why not change it? Looking gently at him again, she was surprised and saddened to see that there were tears in his eyes. There were tears in his voice, too, as he answered, It is too late for that. I shall never be better than I am. I shall sink lower and be worse. He leaned an elbow on her table and covered his eyes with his hand. The table trembled in the silence that followed. She had never seen him softened and was much distressed. He knew her to be so, without looking at her, and said, Pray forgive me, Miss Manette. I break down before the knowledge of what I want to say to you. Will you hear me? If it will do you any good, Mr. Carton, if it would make you happier, it would make me very glad. God bless you for your sweet compassion. He unshaded his face after a little while and spoke steadily. Don't be afraid to hear me. Don't shrink from anything I say. I am like one who died young. All my life might have been. No, Mr. Carton. I am sure that the best part of it might still be. I am sure that you might be much, much worthier of yourself. Say of you, Miss Manette... And although I know better, although in the mystery of my own wretched heart I know better, I shall never forget it. This has been Harper Audio. Harper Collins is the copyright owner of this recording and has consented to a limited distribution of Harper Audio as an 8 kilohertz computer sound file on Internet Town Hall. It is a violation of United States and international copyright laws to copy these recordings in any other way. Harper Audio is a trademark of HarperCollins Publishers, Inc. To order a copy of this tape or to request a catalog of all Harper Audio spoken word cassettes, please call 1-800-C-HARPER or 717-941-1214 or send mail to harper at town.hall.org. This has been a production of the Internet Multicasting Service. Support for Harper Audio is provided by HarperCollins and by Sun Microsystems and O'Reilly & Associates. Network connectivity for the Internet Multicasting Service is provided by UUNet Technologies and MFS Datanet. This is the Internet Multicasting Service. Harper Audio presents A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens, read by James Mason. In a French wine shop, Monsieur Defarge and his wife plot the king's downfall. Thank you.
There had been earlier drinking than usual in the wine shop of Monsieur Defarge. As early as six o'clock in the morning, sallow faces peeping through its barred windows had descried other faces within, bending over measures of wine. Monsieur Defarge sold a very thin wine at the best of times, but it would seem to have been an unusually thin wine that he sold at this time, a sour wine, moreover, or a souring, for its influence on the mood of those who drank it was to make them gloomy. No vivacious bacchanalian flame leaped out of the pressed grape of Monsieur Defarge, but a smouldering fire that burned in the dark lay hidden in the dregs of it. This had been the third morning in succession on which there had been early drinking at the wine shop of Monsieur Defarge. It had begun on Monday, and here was Wednesday come. There had been more of early brooding than drinking, for many men had listened and whispered and slunk about there from the time of the opening of the door, who could not have laid a piece of money on the counter to save their souls. These were to the full as interested in the place, however, as if they could have commanded whole barrels of wine, and they glided from seat to seat and from corner to corner, swallowing talk in lieu of drink with greedy looks. Notwithstanding an unusual flow of company, the master of the wine shop was not visible. He was not missed, for nobody who crossed the threshold looked for him. Nobody asked for him. Nobody wondered to see only Madame Defarge in her seat, presiding over the distribution of wine, with a bowl of battered small coins before her, as much defaced and beaten out of their original impress as the small coinage of humanity from whose ragged pockets they had come. A suspended interest and a prevalent absence of mind were perhaps observed by the spies who looked in at the wine shop, as they looked in at every place, high and low, from the king's palace to the criminal's jail. Games of cards languished, players of dominoes musingly built towers with them, drinkers drew figures on the table with spilt drops of wine. Madame Defarge herself picked out the pattern of her sleeve with her toothpick, and saw and heard something inaudible and invisible a long way off. Thus, Saint Antoine, in this vinous feature of his until midday, it was high noontide when two dusty men passed through his streets and under his swinging lamps, of whom one was Monsieur Defarge, the other a mender of roads in a blue cap. All a dust and a thirst, the two entered the wine shop. Their arrival had lighted a kind of fire in the breast of Saint Antoine, fast spreading as they came along, which stirred and flickered in flames of faces at most doors and windows. Yet no one had followed them, and no man spoke when they entered the wine shop, though the eyes of every man there were turned upon them. Good day, gentlemen, said Monsieur Defarge. It may have been a signal for loosening the general tongue. It elicited an answering chorus of good day. It is bad weather, gentlemen, said Defarge, shaking his head. Upon which every man looked at his neighbour, and then all cast down their eyes and sat silent, except one man who got up and went out. My wife, said Defarge aloud, addressing Madame Defarge, I have travelled certain leagues with this good mender of roads, called Jacques. I met him by accident a day and a half's journey out of Paris. He is a good child, this mender of roads, called Jacques. Give him a drink, my wife. 
A second man got up and went out. Madame Defarge set wine before the mender of roads, called Jacques, who doffed his blue cap to the company and drank. In the breast of his blouse he carried some coarse dark bread. He ate of this between whiles, and sat munching and drinking near Madame Defarge's counter. A third man got up and went out. Defarge refreshed himself with a draught of wine, but he took less than was given to the stranger, as being himself a man to whom it was no rarity, and stood waiting until the countryman had made his breakfast. He looked at no one present, and no one now looked at him, not even Madame Defarge, who had taken up her knitting and was at work. Defarge closed the door carefully and spoke in a subdued voice. Jacques one, Jacques two. Jacques three. This is the witness encountered by appointment by me, Jacques four. He will tell you all. Speak, Jacques five. The mender of the roads, blue cap in hand, wiped his swarthy forehead with it and said, uh, Where shall I commence, monsieur? Commence, was Monsieur Defarge's not unreasonable reply, at the commencement. I am collecting my tools to descend to my cottage down in the village below, where it is already dark, when I raise my eyes and see, coming along the hill, six soldiers. In the midst of them is a tall man with his arms bound, tied to his side, like this. With the aid of his indispensable cap, he represented a man with his elbows bound fast at his hips with cords that were knotted behind him. I stood aside, messieurs, by my heap of stones, to see the soldiers and their prisoner pass, for it is a solitary road that, where any spectacle is worth looking at, and at first, as they approach, I see no more than that they are six soldiers with a tall man bound, and that they are almost black in my sight, except on the side of the sun going to bed, where they have a red edge, messieurs. Also, I see that their long shadows are on the hollow ridge on the opposite side of the road and are on the hill above it and are like the shadows of giants. Also, I see that they are covered with dust and that the dust moves with them as they come. Tramp, tramp. Come on, says the chief of that company, pointing to the village. Bring him fast to his tomb and they bring him faster. I follow. His arms are swelled because of his being bound so tight. His wooden shoes are large and clumsy, and he is lame. Because he is lame and consequently slow, they drive him with their guns, like this. He imitated the action of man's being impelled forward by the butt-ends of muskets. As they descend the hill, like madmen running a race, he falls. They laugh and pick him up again. His face is bleeding and covered with dust, but he cannot touch it. Thereupon they laugh again. They bring him into the village. All the village runs to look. They take him past the mill and up to the prison. All the village sees the prison gate open in the darkness of night and swallow him like this. He opened his mouth as wide as he could and shut it with a sounding snap of his teeth. Observant of his unwillingness to mar the effect by opening it again, Defarge said... Go on, Jacques. All the village, pursued the mender of roads, on tiptoe and in a low voice, withdraws. All the village whispers by the fountain, 
All the village sleeps, all the village dreams of that unhappy one within the locks and bars of the prison on the crag and never to come out of it except to perish. In the morning, with my tools upon my shoulder, eating my morsel of black bread as I go, I make a circuit of the prison on my way to my work. There I see him, high up, behind the bars of a lofty iron cage, bloody and dusty as last night, looking through. He remains up there in his iron cage some days. The village looks at him by stealth, for it's afraid. But it always looks up from a distance at the prison on the crag, and in the evening, when the work of the day is achieved and it assembles to gossip at the fountain, all faces are turned towards the prison. Formerly, they were turned towards the posting house. Now, they are turned towards the prison. They whisper at the fountain that although condemned to death, he will not be executed. They say that petitions have been presented in Paris, showing that he was enraged and made mad by the death of his child. They say that a petition has been presented to the king himself. What do I know? It is possible. Perhaps yes, perhaps no. Listen then, Jacques. Number one of that name sternly interposed. Know that the petition was presented to the king and queen. All here, yourself excepted, saw the king take it, in his carriage in the street, sitting beside the queen. It is Defarge, whom you see here, who, at the hazard of his life, darted out before the horses with the petition in his hand. And once again, listen, Jacques, said the kneeling number three, his fingers ever wandering over and over those fine nerves with a strikingly greedy air as if he hungered for something that was neither food nor drink. The guard, horse and foot, surrounded the petitioner and struck him blows, you hear? I hear, messieurs. Go on, then, said Defarge. This has been Harper Audio. Harper Collins is the copyright owner of this recording and has consented to a limited distribution of Harper Audio as an 8 kilohertz computer sound file on Internet Town Hall. It is a violation of United States and international copyright laws to copy these recordings in any other way. Harper Audio is a trademark of HarperCollins Publishers, Inc. To order a copy of this tape or to request a catalog of all Harper Audio spoken word cassettes, please call 1-800-C-HARPER or 717-941-1214 or send mail to harper at town.hall.org. This has been a production of the Internet Multicasting Service. Support for Harper Audio is provided by HarperCollins and by Sun Microsystems and O'Reilly & Associates. Network connectivity for the Internet Multicasting Service is provided by UUNet Technologies and MFS Datanet. This is the Internet Multicasting Service. Harper Audio presents actor James Mason reading Charles Dickens's A Tale of Two Cities in a scene that shows the violence that simmered in France just before the Revolution. Again, on the other hand, they whisper at the fountain, resumed the countryman, that he is brought down into our country to be executed on the spot, and that he will very certainly be executed. They even whisper that because he has slain Monseigneur, and because Monseigneur was the father of his tenants, serfs, what you will, he will be executed as a parricide. 
One old man says at the fountain that his right hand, armed with the knife, will be burnt off before his face. That into wounds which will be made in his arms, his breast, and his legs, there will be poured boiling oil, melted lead, hot resin, wax, and sulphur. Finally, that he will be torn limb from limb by four strong horses. That old man says all this was actually done to a prisoner who made an attempt on the life of the late king, Louis XV. But how do I know if he lies? I'm no scholar. Listen once again, then, Jacques, said the man with the restless hand and the craving air. The name of that prisoner was Damien, and it was all done in open day, in the open streets of the city of Paris, and nothing was more noticed in the vast concourse that saw it done than the crowd of ladies of quality and fashion who were full of eager attention to the last, to the last Jack, prolonged until nightfall, when he had lost two legs and an arm, and still breathed. And it was done. Nothing more was said. And the mender of roads, being found already dozing on the topmost stair, was advised to lay himself down on the pallet bed and take some rest. He needed no persuasion, and was soon asleep. Worse quarters than Defarge's wine shop could easily have been found in Paris for a provincial slave of that degree, saving from mysterious dread of madam, by which he was constantly haunted. His life was very new and agreeable. But madam sat all day at her counter, so expressly unconscious of him, and so particularly determined not to perceive that his being there had any connection with anything below the surface, that he shook in his wooden shoes whenever his eye lighted on her. For he contended with himself that it was impossible to foresee what that lady might pretend next, and he felt assured that if she should take it into her brightly ornamented head to pretend that she had seen him do a murder and afterwards flay the victim, she would infallibly go through with it until the play was played out. Therefore, when Sunday came, the mender of roads was not enchanted, though he said he was, to find that Madame was to accompany Monsieur and himself to Versailles. It was additionally disconcerting to have Madame knitting all the way there in a public conveyance. It was additionally disconcerting yet to have Madame in the crowd in the afternoon still with her knitting in her hands as the crowd waited to see the carriage of the King and Queen. "'You work hard, Madame,' said a man near her. "'Yes,' answered Madame Defarge. "'I have a good deal to do. "'What do you make, Madame?' "'Many things.' For instance, for instance, returned Madame Defarge composedly, shrouds. The man moved a little way away as soon as he could, and the mender of roads fanned himself with his blue cap, feeling it mightily close and oppressive. If he needed a king and queen to restore him, he was fortunate in having his remedy at hand, for soon the large-faced king and the fair-faced queen came in their golden coach attended by the shining bull's-eye of their court, a glittering multitude of laughing ladies and fine lords, and in jewels and silks and powder and splendor and elegantly spurning figures and handsomely disdainful faces of both sexes, the mender of roads bathed himself so much to his temporary intoxication that he cried, Long live the king, long live the queen, long live everybody and everything, as if he had never heard of ubiquitous Jacques in his time. 
Then there were gardens, courtyards, terraces, fountains, green banks, more king and queen, more bullseye, more lords and ladies, more long live they all, until he absolutely wept with sentiment. During the whole of this scene, which lasted some three hours, he had plenty of shouting and weeping and sentimental company, and throughout Defarge held him by the collar, as if to restrain him from flying at the object of his brief devotion and tearing them to pieces. Bravo, said Defarge, clapping him on the back when it was all over, like a patron. You are a good boy. The mender of roads was now coming to himself and was mistrustful of having made a mistake in his late demonstrations, but no. You are the fellow we want, said Defarge in his ear. You make these fools believe that it will last forever. Then they are the more insolent, and it is nearer ended. Hey, cried the mender of roads reflectively, that's true. These fools know nothing. While they despise your breath and would stop it forever and ever in you or in a hundred like you rather than in one of their own horses or dogs, they only know what your breath tells them. Let it deceive them then a little longer. It cannot deceive them too much. Madame Defarge looked superciliously at the client and nodded in confirmation. As to you, she said, you would shout and shed tears for anything if it made a show and a noise. Say, would you not? Truly, madam, I think so, for the moment. If you were shown a great heap of dolls and were set upon them to pluck them to pieces and despoil them for your own advantage, you would pick out the richest and gayest. Say, would you not? Uh, truly, yes, madam. And if you were shown a flock of birds, unable to fly, and were set upon them to strip them of their feathers for your own advantage, you would set upon the birds of the finest feathers, would you not? It is true, madam. You have seen both dolls and birds today, said Madame Defarge, with a wave of her hand toward the place where they had last been apparent. Now, go home. When Saint-Antoine had again enfolded the defages in his dusky wings, and they, having finally alighted near the saints' boundaries, were picking their way on foot through the black mud and offal of his streets, Madame Defarge spoke to her husband. Say then, my friend, what did Jacques of the police tell thee? Very little tonight, but all he knows. There is another spy commissioned for our quarter. There may be many more for all that he can say, but he knows of one. Good. His appearance, is it known? Age, about forty years. Height, about five foot nine. Black hair. Complexion dark. Generally rather handsome visage. Eyes dark, face thin, long and sallow. Nose aquiline, but not straight, having a peculiar inclination toward the left cheek. Expression, therefore, sinister. Eh, my face... It is a portrait, said Madame, laughing. He shall be registered tomorrow. The night was hot, and the shop, close shut and surrounded by so foul a neighborhood, was ill-smelling. Monsieur Defarge's olfactory sense was by no means delicate, but the stock of wine smelt much stronger than it ever tasted, and so did the stock of rum and brandy and aniseed. He whiffed the compound of scents away as he put down his smoked-out pipe. You are fatigued, said madame. 
raising her glance as she knotted the money. There are only the usual odours. I am a little tired, her husband acknowledged. You are a little depressed, too, said Madame, whose quick eyes had never been so intent on the accounts, but they had had a ray or two for him. Oh, the men, the men. But, my dear, began Defarge, but, my dear, repeated Madame, nodding firmly, but, my dear, you are faint of heart tonight, my dear. Well, then, said Defarge, as if a thought were wrung out of his breast, it is a long time. It is a long time, repeated his wife, and when is it not a long time? Vengeance and retribution require a long time. It is the rule. It does not take a long time to strike a man with lightning, said Defarge. How long, demanded Madame composedly, does it take to make and store the lightning? Tell me. Defarge raised his head thoughtfully, as if there was something in that, too. It does not take a long time, said Madame, for an earthquake to swallow a town. Eh, well, tell me how long it takes to prepare the earthquake. A long time, I suppose, said Defarge. And when it is ready, it takes place and grinds to pieces everything before it. In the meantime, it is always preparing, though it is not seen or heard. That is your consolation. Keep it. This has been Harper Audio. Harper Collins is the copyright owner of this recording and has consented to a limited distribution of Harper Audio as an 8 kilohertz computer sound file on Internet Town Hall. It is a violation of United States and international copyright laws to copy these recordings in any other way. Harper Audio is a trademark of HarperCollins Publishers, Inc. To order a copy of this tape or to request a catalog of all Harper Audio spoken word cassettes, please call 1-800-C-HARPER or 717-941-1214 or send mail to harper at town.hall.org. This has been a production of the Internet Multicasting Service. Support for Harper Audio is provided by HarperCollins and by Sun Microsystems and O'Reilly and Associates. Network connectivity for the Internet Multicasting Service is provided by UUNet Technologies and MFS Datanet. This is the Internet Multicasting Service. Harper Audio presents A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens, read by actor James Mason. It is a vivid story of friendship and sacrifice set during the French Revolution. Nothing that we do is done in vain. I believe with all my soul that we shall see the triumph. But even if not, even if I knew certainly not, show me the neck of an aristocrat and tyrant, and I still would... Then Madame, with her teeth set, tied a very terrible knot indeed. Hold, cried Defarge, reddening a little, as if he felt charged with cowardice. I too, my dear, will stop at nothing. Yes, but it is your weakness, and you sometimes need to see your victim and your opportunity to sustain you. Sustain yourself without that. When the time comes, let loose a tiger and a devil. But wait for the time with the tiger and the devil chained, not shown, yet always ready.
A figure entering at the door threw a shadow on Madame Defarge, which she felt to be a new one. She laid down her knitting and began to pin the rose in her headdress before she looked at the figure. It was curious. The moment Madame Defarge took up the rose, the customer ceased talking and began gradually to drop out of the wine shop. "'Good day, madam,' said the newcomer. "'Good day, monsieur.' She said it aloud, but added to herself as she resumed her knitting, "'Ha! Ah, good day. Age about forty, height about five foot nine, black hair, generally rather handsome visage, complexion dark, eyes dark, thin, long and sallow face, aquiline nose, but not straight, having a peculiar inclination toward the left cheek, which imparts a sinister impression. "'Good day, one and all.' Have the goodness to give me a little glass of old cognac and a mouthful of cool, fresh water, madam. Madam complied with a polite air. Marvellous cognac, this, madam. It was the first time it had ever been so complimented, and Madame Defarge knew enough of its antecedents to know better. She said, however, that the cognac was flattered, and then took up her knitting. The visitor watched her fingers for a few moments, and took the opportunity of observing the place in general. You knit with great skill, madam. I am accustomed to it. A pretty pattern, too. You think so, said madam, looking at him with a smile. Decidedly. May one ask what it is for? Pastime, said madam, looking at him with a smile, while her fingers moved nimbly. Not for use? That depends. I may find a use for it one day. If I do, well said Madame, drawing a breath and nodding her head with a stern kind of coquetry. I'll use it. The spy, who was there to pick up any crumbs he could find or make, did not allow his baffled state to express itself in his sinister face, but stood with an air of gossiping gallantry, leaning his elbow on Madame Defarge's little counter and occasionally sipping his cognac. Here is my husband, said Madame Defarge. As the keeper of the wine-shop entered at the door, the spy saluted him by touching his hat and saying with an engaging smile, "'Good day, Jacques.' Defarge stopped short and stared at him. "'Good day, Jacques,' the spy repeated, with not quite so much confidence or quite so easy a smile under the stare. "'You deceive yourself, monsieur,' returned the keeper of the wine-shop. "'You mistake me for another.' That is not my name. I am Ernest Defarge. It is all the same, said the spy, airily, but discomfited, too. Good day. Good day, answered Defarge, dryly. The pleasure of conversing with you, Monsieur Defarge, recalls to me, pursued the spy, that I have the honour of cherishing some interesting associations with your name. Indeed, said Defarge, with much indifference. I have known Dr. Manette and his daughter in England. Yes. You don't hear much about them now, said the spy? No. In effect, Madam struck in, looking up from her work and her little song, we never hear about them. We receive the news of their safe arrival, and perhaps another letter, or perhaps two, but since then they have gradually taken their road in life, we ours, and we have held no correspondence. Perfectly so, madam, replied the spy. She is going to be married. Going, echoed madam. She was pretty enough to have been married long ago. 
You English are cold, it seems to me. Oh, you know I am English. I perceive your tongue is, returned madam. And what the tongue is, I suppose the man is. He did not take the identification as a compliment, but he made the best of it and turned it off with a laugh. After sipping his cognac to the end, he added, Yes, Miss Manette is going to be married, but not to an Englishman, to one who, like herself, is French by birth. And speaking of Gaspar, ah, poor Gaspar, it was cruel, cruel. It is a curious thing that she is going to marry the nephew of Monsieur the Marquis, for whom Gaspar was exalted to that height of so many feet, in other words, the present Marquis. But he lives unknown in England. He is no Marquis there. He is Mr. Charles Darnay. Dolnay is the name of his mother's family. Madame Defarge knitted steadily, but the intelligence had a palpable effect upon her husband. Do what he would behind the little counter, as to the striking of a light and the lighting of his pipe, he was troubled, and his hand was not trustworthy. The spy would have been no spy if he had failed to see it or to record it in his mind. Having made at least this one hit, whatever it might prove to be worth, and no customers coming in to help him to any other, the spy paid for what he had drunk and took his leave. "'Can it be true?' said Defarge in a low voice, looking down at his wife as he stood smoking with his hand on the back of her chair, what he has said of Mademoiselle Manette.' As he has said it, returned Madam, lifting her eyebrows a little, it is probably false. But it may be true. If it is, Defarge began and stopped. If it is, repeated his wife. And if it does come while we live to see it triumph, I hope for her sake destiny will keep her husband out of France. Her husband's destiny, said Madame Defarge, with her usual composure, We'll take him where he is to go, and we'll lead him to the end that is to end him. That is all I know. But it is very strange. Now, at least, it is not very strange, said Defarge, rather pleading with his wife to induce her to admit it, that, after all our sympathy for Monsieur her father and herself, her husband's name should be proscribed under your hand at this moment, by the side of that infernal dog who has just left us. Stranger things than that will happen when it does come, answered Madame. I have them both here, of a certainty, and they are both here for their merits. That is enough. She rolled up her knitting when she had said those words. In the evening, at which season of all others, Saint Antoine turned himself inside out and sat on doorsteps and window ledges and came to the corners of vile streets and courts for a breath of air, Madame Defarge, with her work in her hand, was accustomed to pass from place to place and from group to group, a missionary. There were many like her, such as the world will do well never to breed again. All the women knitted. They knitted worthless things. But the mechanical work was a mechanical substitute for eating and drinking. The hands moved for the jaws and the digestive apparatus. If the bony fingers had been still, the stomachs would have been more famine-pinched. But as the fingers went, the eyes went, and the thoughts. And as Madame Defarge moved on from group to group, all three went quicker and fiercer among every little knot of women that she had spoken with and left behind. Her husband smoked at his door, looking after her with admiration. 
A great woman, said he. A strong woman. A grand woman. A frightfully grand woman. Darkness closed around. And then came the ringing of church bells and the distant beating of the military drums in the palace courtyard as the women sat knitting, knitting. Darkness encompassed them. Another darkness was closing in as surely when the church bells, then ringing pleasantly in many an airy steeple over France, should be melted into thunder cannon, when the military drums should be beating to drown a wretched voice, that night all potent as the voice of power and plenty, freedom and life. So much was closing in about the women who sat knitting, knitting, that they, their very selves, were closing in around a structure yet unbuilt, where they were to sit, knitting, knitting, counting dropping heads. This has been Harper Audio. Harper Collins is the copyright owner of this recording and has consented to a limited distribution of Harper Audio as an 8 kilohertz computer sound file on Internet Town Hall. It is a violation of United States and international copyright laws to copy these recordings in any other way. Harper Audio is a trademark of HarperCollins Publishers, Inc. To order a copy of this tape or to request a catalog of all Harper Audio spoken word cassettes, please call 1-800-C-HARPER or 717-941-1214 or send mail to harper at town.hall.org. This has been a production of the Internet Multicasting Service. Support for Harper Audio is provided by HarperCollins and by Sun Microsystems and O'Reilly and Associates. Network connectivity for the Internet Multicasting Service is provided by UUNet Technologies and MFS Datanets.